Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Where of is that uh, the schedule for the next couple of weeks is pretty normal except until the 5th of January. Then on the 5th, I'll be leaving. We'll have Bible class that Tuesday night on the 4th. We will not have Bible class on the 6th that week or on the 13th or on the 20th. So for those three Thursday nights, there will not be class. Then I return from Kiev on the 21st, and the normal schedule resumes at that point for Sunday um, Sunday morning, Tuesday night, and Thursday night. Uh, there any other announcements? And hopefully by then we'll have the doors on the walls. Or the doors in the and we can close off the door space. <clears throat> Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that when a person trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior, then his death on the cross is applied to them and they have salvation, and that uh, sin is no longer an issue in terms of eternal relationship with God. However, when we are disobedient to God, it's just like a disobedient child, that fellowship or rapport with God is broken, and that it's necessary to simply admit or confess our sins to him, and we're immediately forgiven, cleansed of all sin, and restored to fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are uh, in fellowship, ready to study this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening to be refreshed by a study of your word. Father, we're thankful for the fact that we've seen answer to prayer, that Taylor Williams' surgery went well, that he's home recovering, and that uh, we pray that uh, the... uh, that he'll be able to recover. The doctors will be able to deal with this uh, cancer quickly, easily, and there will be uh, no uh, long-term negative consequences. Father, we continue to pray for others uh, on our prayer list who are facing surgery or facing other uh, serious uh, illness and that you would just watch over them and that their lives would be a testimony to your grace. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, may we be able to focus and concentrate and put aside all the things that so easily 
distract us from listening to your word and focusing on what's being said and what's being taught so that God the Holy Spirit can use this in our lives to mature us spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're continuing our study in relation to Acts chapter 1 verse 3. Acts 1, 1 to 1, 3 basically serves as the uh, introduction to the book of Acts. The writer is Luke, who's writing this account to Theophilus. It is the continuation of the previous account that he wrote to Theophilus that dealt with the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the Gospel of Luke. So he summarizes uh, what he has said in the previous uh, gospel, and then he, in reference to Jesus meeting with the disciples after the resurrection, he states in verse 3, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, that's the period of time after the Feast of first fruits, after the uh, time when he rose from the dead, uh, moving down the calendar towards the day of Pentecost. So uh, he his ascension occurs 10 days before uh, the day of Pentecost. And during this time, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. Now, last time I went through a long introduction on the kingdom of God. It's important to understand what the Bible teaches about the kingdom of God if we're going to understand a lot of things that went on in the Gospels and what's happening, especially in the first uh, eight chapters of the book of Acts, because it still has to do with this message, this proclamation of the, what is called the Gospel or the Good News of the Kingdom of God. And the Kingdom of God relates to this word, basileia, the Greek word for kingdom, which simply refers to a the act of ruling or a territory or a dominion or the authority of a king or a kingdom. But when we come to this concept of the kingdom of God, there's a lot of confusion. There are people who think that the kingdom of God is a spiritual uh, kingdom and that somehow Jesus is ruling over this kingdom and it exists in the hearts and minds of his followers. There are others who think of the kingdom as simply a geopolitical uh, economic kingdom that is related just to uh, the restoration of, of Israel to the land of Israel. There are other variations on different ideas of the kingdom. So last time I took us through a study of the kingdom uh, in the Old Testament up through the Gospels, and I sort of summarized in this chart on the kingdom of God. The word kingdom... And reference to God is used in two different ways. It's used in the sense of the broad, general, sovereign authority of God as the creator of all things and his sovereign authority over his creation. And so in that sense, we speak of the universal or the sovereign reign of God and that his kingdom is forever and ever. That universal reign of God over his creation is distinguished from a specific expression of his rule on the earth, which is sometimes referred to by the term a theocratic kingdom. And the, the, that comes from the word theocracy, meaning the direct rule of God 
uh, over man. And so then, then what I put up here was a timeline for human history with the cross at the center of human history and then just a few benchmarks on that timeline, the original creation in the Garden of Eden, uh, then Mount Sinai when uh, Israel receives the law and enters into the uh, covenant with God known as the Mosaic Law or Mosaic Covenant, then the post-cross period or the post-cross dispensation, uh, the age in which we now live called the church age, which will be followed by a brief seven-year period referred to in Scripture as uh, the Great Tribulation. It has to do with Israel, so the Old Testament title for it is the time of Jacob's wrath coming out of a, a term that is used by Jeremiah. Sometimes that's referred to by the uh, chronology that's given in the ninth chapter of Daniel in the Old Testament that this is a, a time uh, of, of, of one week long which is, uh, in the context, is talking about a period of seven years, a period of a seven, not exactly a week, but a seven-year period that uh, culminates God's plan for, uh, for Israel prior to the establishment of the promised kingdom from the Old Testament that is uh, often referred to in terms of its duration called the millennium or the messianic kingdom, and then that ends with a revolt that's described in Revelation chapter 20, and then we go into eternity with the new heavens and the new earth. There is the direct rule of God on earth in terms of his presence with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden up to the fall of man. So that is the first form of a theocratic rule, the personal rule of God over his creation. Following the fall, there is not a direct rule of God over his creation until he appears to Moses on Mount Sinai, gives him the covenant, uh, the prelude of which are the Ten Commandments, and you have the 613 commandments that are in the Torah, in the Mosaic Law, and God is seen as the king over Israel. He, there is not a human king. And it is not until the rejection of God occurs in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that God then allows uh, Samuel, the first prophet, to uh, anoint the first king of the United Kingdom of Israel, which is King Saul. King Saul turns out to be a dismal failure. He looks good like many politicians. He's tall. He's handsome. He's uh, talented, he's a great warrior in battle, uh, but he just doesn't have the uh, spiritual integrity to be the ruler of the kingdom. And in that, Saul foreshadows the basic problem of all politics, which is what, is war- what Samuel had warned uh, the Israelites about in uh, the eighth chapter of Samuel, and that is that, that eventually... Power tends to accrue to the powerful, and there is always a move to uh, increase taxation, to whatever the justification may be, to uh, increase the uh, tyranny over the people, to uh, draft the citizens of the uh, of the kingdom into the service of the kingdom, so the government expands. I mean, we read through First Samuel chapter eight; it looks like a uh, it could have been written by many of the pundits today. Government tends to always expand and increase its size until there's some sort of collapse because the country becomes top-heavy 
and uh, when all power accrues to um, the ruler, then you have tyranny, freedom breaks down, and eventually there's some sort of collapse. This is what happened in the Old Testament. Eventually, and all of the kings of the southern kingdom who were in the lineage of David, uh, God entered into a covenant with David, so we see here the promise to David. That's one of the major benchmarks in the Old Testament. God promised that one of his descendants would sit eternally on the throne of of Israel. Now, you can't have someone sit on a throne forever unless that person has eternal life. That's just sort of embedded in the concept. And so there is already the implication by the covenant that there is going to be a physical descendant of David, that means he has to be human, who will sit on the throne of David forever and ever, which means he has to be eternal. And so there's the implication of eternal life. This is what is then referenced in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, when there's the prophecy that when the Messiah comes, he would be born in Bethlehem, which is a seemingly an inconsequential town, but the one who would be born in Bethlehem in that passage is one whose goings forth are forever, are from ever and ever, from eternity past. So the text says that there's going to be somebody born whose goings forth are from eternity, indicating he's born, which indicates humanity, but he's always existed. His goings forth have been from eternity. So that indicates he's eternal, so he must also be God. So what you find in these messianic prophecies and promises in the Old Testament is an emphasis, as we've seen, that the uh, there will be a coming king who will be both human and divine because only a divine ruler, a divine king who is without sin, without flaw, without failure, can truly rule the kingdom and provide true justice and righteousness because all the human kings fail. And there were only uh, a, a handful of kings in the southern kingdom of Judah that even approached uh, the, the pattern, the model that God set forth in the Torah. And they had great failures, and the rest of them, all the kings in the northern kingdom, all the kings in the southern kingdom, were were all failures because ultimately no human institution, no human king can truly solve the problems of human society and and human nature, which ultimately goes down to the problem uh, to the problem of sin. And so throughout the Old Testament there is this promise that that, that continues to uh, become un- unfolded more and more uh, in these prophetic statements that there is a coming. King, and that coming king is un, uh, identified, as we've seen on our Sunday morning study, with this title of the anointed one or the Messiah, the Hebrew word for the one who is anointed. And so that built this expectation uh, coming out of the Old Testament, coming out of the uh, diaspora, coming into the uh, period of time of the first, what we refer to now as the first century A.D., as you come into that period of time, that there's this expectation that a Messiah is going to come. And suddenly onto the scene comes this really strange figure who walks around in camel's hair, not like you find at the men's store, but he's got, you know, camel, rough, woven camel hide, camel hair, uh, skin uh, for clothing, and he eats locusts and honey and lives out in the 
desert by himself, and he makes Jeremiah Johnson look like a sophisticated gentleman of you know, Fifth Avenue. But he has a message, and his message is that the people needed to repent or to change because the kingdom of heaven was near, indicating that the it's possible that if you fulfill the command to turn back to God, then the kingdom that has been promised throughout the last uh, 2,000 years or 1,000 years or so would come into existence. And that was John the Baptist, and he fulfills the role that was prophesied in Malachi chapter 4 that there would be a forerunner to the Messiah that would... Uh, that would prepare a way for him. And so that was his message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus came along, as we saw, and he said the same thing, that he came and he was the king, and he's offering the kingdom, this Davidic uh, Davidic kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament. He's offering that to Israel. They reject it. We saw that the increase of tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, throughout the first uh, two to two and a half years of his ministry, everything came to a head in Matthew chapter 12. He's accused of having power from from the devil and that it was Satan who gave him the power to cast out demons, etc. And that is when Jesus made the statement that um, that they have uh, they have uh, blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, and because of that, they would not have an opportunity uh, to to be uh, saved. And he's not talking about eternal salvation there. He's talking about the fact that the kingdom has been offered to Israel. The nation has rejected that offer, and so now there will be consequences. And which led eventually to the judgment and destruction in uh, AD 70. So at that point in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus began to change gears in how he was teaching his disciples. And prior to that, he had taught more openly, but now he teaches in parables. And he didn't give the clues to the parables to the crowds, the multitudes. He, when the disciples would go off with him on his own, uh, afterwards, they would say, well, what exactly did you mean? And then Jesus would explain the parables to the disciples. And the point that he was making is the point that I emphasized last time. When you look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And a mystery, when you look at this, in, in the, this term in the Bible is used as a, as a technical term for previously unknown or unrevealed information from God. So what Jesus says is, basically up to this point, there was not a realization that Israel would reject the king. And now that they've rejected the king, we're gonna, God's going to go to plan B, as it were. And plan B is going to postpone the kingdom, and there's going to be an intervening age, an intervening what we call a dispensation, an intervening period of time before the Messiah will establish the kingdom. And so he's going to reveal certain characteristics of this intervening period, this intervening age, and that is what is called the mystery the mystery doctrine of the kingdom or mystery form of the kingdom. Now, the reason this is important for our study in Acts is because what Luke is saying in Acts 1-3 is that during this 40-day period, Jesus is teaching concerning the kingdom. 
So what is he teaching concerning the kingdom? That's what we have to understand because uh, there's so much confusion over this topic if we don't locate that contextually within the life of Christ and what's been going on, then it's easy to, for people to just make that mean whatever they want it to mean and basically make it up on the spot and say, well, I think it means this or I think it means that. And you can't do that. You can't just come along and say, well, this is my opinion. Uh, you have to argue for things like this, look at them in terms of their their context. And what Jesus is doing very simply is he's saying, the kingdom's not going to come now. You've rejected it. The leadership of Israel rejected it, and it's going to be postponed. So there's going to be an intervening age, and this age is going to have certain characteristics. And as part of these characteristics, there's going to be a new people that are going to be called out by God. And that's what we refer to as the church. It is not that God has uh, permanently rejected Israel. It is that the plan for Israel is put on hold there is something new that comes in in the intervening period and that that will have some unique aspects to it, especially related to the spiritual life. And so this becomes the focal point then of the New Testament, but it's the focal point of Jesus' teaching during the last year and a half or year or so from Matthew 12 until the ascension, which is recorded in uh Acts 1, 6, and following. So that's what Jesus begins to do in Matthew chapter 13. So we're going to get into this period where he talks about the mysteries, and it's not a mystery form of the kingdom. Never uses that term in the text, even though you'll hear theologians talk about that. There's no mystery form. We're not in a form of the kingdom. Uh, The kingdom is clearly a national geophysical economic kingdom located in Israel with Jerusalem as the capital and with a Davidic descendant sitting on the throne ruling over, uh, ruling over the, the government of Israel. And that isn't happening today. That is still something that's going to happen uh, in the future. So the messianic kingdom is yet future, and then there will be an eternal theocratic kingdom. So uh, what I pointed out last time as we came to Uh, This chapter is that these parables, which are often thought and often taught by people to have something to do with salvation, don't really have anything to do with salvation. The gospel message here isn't the gospel for uh, salvation in terms of of, uh, where you're going to end up in eternity. The gospel message is related to the message of related to the kingdom and what has been taught related to the kingdom. And so when Jesus began with the first parable, the parable of the sower, notice he doesn't say like he does in all the other parables in this chapter, except for the last one, he doesn't say the kingdom of God is like. Once you get into the second parable, he starts with this opening phrase, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is compared to something. But at the beginning, he just talks about, uh, tells a story that is a familiar story in an agricultural uh setting, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, the birds came and devoured them, some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth, but when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Some fell among thorns, 
and the thorns sprang up and choked them, but others fell on good ground, yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. This is not talking about the Christian life. and You've probably heard that. That is a very popular teaching, but that is not what this is talking about. Because verse 10 and following gives us the real hermeneutical clue to understanding this. The disciples say to him, uh, why are you speaking to us in parables? What's with the code language all of a sudden? How come everything's all of a sudden in secret code and you're telling stories and not telling us what they mean? What does this mean? And Jesus says, uh, as I pointed out from verse 10 already, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The issue is revelation. The issue is there are people who've rejected what has been revealed about the kingdom and that I'm the king. And so for them, because they rejected that, that information is not going to be given to them, but to those who've accepted it, more information about the kingdom is going to be given to them. That's verse 12. For whoever has, to him more will be given. Whoever has what? Whoever has revelation, who's ever accepted the message of the kingdom. Whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he quotes from a prophecy from the Old Testament from Isaiah that was originally directed to the spiritual, uh, uh, the spiritual darkness of the people in Isaiah's day, that they just didn't want to hear from God, they wanted to do it their own way. And in contrast to that generation, Jesus addressed his disciples and said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. You are positive to the message of the kingdom. So starting in verse 19, he interprets the kingdom, and he says, uh, Hear the parable of the sower. Verse 19, When anyone hears the word or the message of the kingdom, He's not talking about the gospel per se here. He's talking about the message that he has been proclaiming about the coming of the messianic kingdom, which is now being postponed. When anyone hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes, snatches it away, what was sown in his heart, referring to Satan. Uh, This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is the one who hears the word immediately, receives it with joy, But there's no real depth, and before long the trials and tribulations of life uh, cause him to uh, refocus away from the message of of the kingdom. And then he goes on and explains it that way. So the focal point is then, in verse 23, those who receive the seed, that is, those who receive the message of the kingdom and hear the word and understand it, bear fruit. The bearing of fruit has to do with application of the message that of the kingdom, that they, that has an impact on their life. What was the command? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did John the Baptist mean by that? What did Jesus mean when he said repent? It's not go beat yourself up because of your sins. It's not uh, go feel sorry for your sins. It has nothing to do with that. It has to go back all the way into the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 30, a passage we've studied many times, that Moses in his final words to the Israelites before he left them, before he died, was that you're going to go through some discipline from God, and you're going to reject God to such a degree 
that eventually God's going to punish you to the point where he just takes you out of the land that he promised you. But there's always grace in the midst of judgment. There will come a time when God will bring you back, but before he will bring you back, you have to turn back to him. Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, but when you turn, and that's that word for repent, when you repent or when you turn back to him, then God will bring you back from all the nations to which he has scattered you. That's that's the message. And so the people who've received this have turned back to God, and so the message is then bearing fruit in their lives. That's just the first of these parables. The next parable focuses on uh, another agricultural analogy, which is an extension, really, of the first parable. In verse 24, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. It's the same kind of thing. The man who is sowing uh, good seed is the is uh, is uh, Jesus as the king offering the kingdom. The seed is still uh, the message, uh, the message of the kingdom. And then we're told, verse 25, but while men slept, the enemy came in and sowed tares, or this is also referred to as uh, darnel. This is a weed that resembles wheat, but it doesn't uh, produce anything, and you can't tear it out or weed it out. In the process of the growth, you just have to let the bad uh, grow up with the good, and it's not until harvest time that you can separate them. And that's really the clue to understanding this. Uh, Jesus uses this parable, and he says uh, there, that an enemy comes along, sows uh, tares or darnel among the wheat, and goes his way. When the crop sprouts up, then the tares appeared. So the servants of the owner came out and said in verse 27, uh, did you not, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he says, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with it. So he concludes in verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them but gather the wheat into my barn. The point that we see here chronologically is that there's a period when the, the good and evil are going to coexist, and that ends with a judgment. And what we learn from putting together the other parables is that that judgment must occur before the kingdom comes in. So this is describing now new information uh, for the disciples that there's going to be an intervening age, and in this intervening age, uh, the sons of the kingdom, that is those who eventually will end up in the, in the kingdom in the future after death, resurrection, etc., that they will be in the kingdom, but they will be sown into the world. And in this new age, good and evil are going to coexist together, and you can't do anything about it until the end of the age. And that means that the good and the evil will coexist. No utopia. None of those things can happen. Government can't solve the problem. Uh, people can't solve the problem. Nothing can solve the problem until the Messiah comes. And they will coexist together until that judgment comes. And when that judgment comes, that's when there's the separation of good and evil. And so this is then expressed 
in verses 39 and 40, after he gives what happens in the chronology, Jesus gives the interpretation of the first parable, then he gives two more. And then uh, the disciples say, wait, 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 you're, going to, you're getting ahead of us here. What's this? What are the tares and the wheat? What's all that about? And so then he goes back to explain that. And in his conclusion in verses 39 and 40, Jesus says, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, not the end of the kingdom, but the end of this age that is going to come between his period of time and the establishment of the kingdom. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Now, when we put this together with what we studied in other areas of prophecy, we see that the angels play a key role in the end-time judgments that occur when uh, Jesus comes back when the Messianic kingdom is established, and this is predicted not only in passages of the Old Testament in books like Daniel and Ezekiel and uh, Isaiah, but also picked up and developed in New Testament books such as Revelation. So the reapers are the angels, so God uses the angels then to bring back all of the uh, elect, all of those who are saved, He's going to use the angels to, to separate the uh, evil uh, from the good, and then there will be a judgment. This precedes the establishment of the kingdom because the kingdom has to begin with everyone that's righteous. You, you're not going to have in a messianic kingdom the coexistence of evil and good. So Jesus says in verse 40, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, that's the future judgment, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man, that's going back to Daniel. Uh, the Son of Man will send out his angels. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, says that, to put it into picture here, the Son of Man is with the Ancient of Days. So there you have two divine figures in Daniel 7. You have the Ancient of Days, who we refer to as God the Father, and you have the Son of Man, which is the eternal second person of the Trinity. The Son of Man is then given the kingdom by the Ancient of Days, God the Father in Daniel chapter 7, and then he returns to the earth to rescue Israel and to establish the Messianic kingdom. That's what he's connecting for us here in verse 41. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Why does it say gathering out of his kingdom? Didn't you say it hadn't been established yet? Well, when the Son of Man returns, he is establishing his kingdom. But... There's these leftovers from the previous age, so there has to be this clearing out that occurs, and that's what Daniel refers to in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, in terms of the judgment at the end of the age. That's uh, what we see at the conclusion of the tribulation period, as we studied when we went through Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19, that you have the judgment of the, of the uh, survivors of the tribulation, are judged, the Gentiles, there's the, uh, what they, what's referred to as the sheep and the goat judgment that occurs at the end of the tribulation. There is a judgment uh, then of the, uh, those who have survived that are unbelievers and those who have survived uh, that are believers who will go into the age. And that's what this is describing. Uh, the Son of Man gathers out all these things, clears it out at the beginning, there's, Daniel talked about a 75-day period of time, transition period, 
between the end of Daniel's 70th week and the beginning of the kingdom for these judgments to take place. So he says he'll gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Clearly referring to the, the eternal punishment, the lake of fire. Then verse 43, he said, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. If you're really listening, you're really interested in truth, you'll pay attention and uh, apply what I've just taught. So that's the interpretation of the of the uh, tares. So the point that he is making, the previously unrevealed information here, is that the intervening age will be an age when evil coexists with righteousness, and that at the end of the age there must be a a, a division, a judgment to clear out the evil, so that the kingdom of the Messiah can. Um, uh, can be established. So we see again the idea that a judgment must occur before the kingdom uh, is established. Then he gives us another parable, the parable of the mustard seed. The Another parable, verse 31, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Now when he uses this approach saying the kingdom of heaven is like uh, he's not comparing anything within the parable to the kingdom. He is simply using the story to express different truths about the intervening age before the kingdom of heaven is established. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, which in- indicates that it has a very inauspicious beginning. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, growing up in a little, uh, little bitty nondescript backwater town of Nazareth, is an inauspicious beginning. It doesn't get any smaller. It doesn't get any more nondescript uh, than growing up in Nazareth. Had a population of maybe 200, and uh, it was sort of a uh, a parable or byword or proverb at the time that. How can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, this is just like some backwater town. It's like, how can anything good come out of Arkansas or Pasadena or whatever? Every, everybody has their own little area, geographical area that's not, uh, uh, respected, let's say, for what they produce. Um, I always re- remember when I first moved up to Connecticut hearing somebody from Maine say, well, haven't you ever heard that when you cross over into Maine, your IQ drops 40 points? So, you know, it doesn't matter. Everybody has somebody to pick on. And Nazareth was who the uh, Jews liked to pick on. How can anything good come out of Nazareth? So that's a nondescript beginning. Just like the mustard seed, it's small, it's inconspicuous. You don't think anything great's going to happen. And Jesus says the mustard seed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, this kind of imagery uh, comes out of the Old Testament as well, and it pictures something that grows rapidly, that is very prosperous from an external viewpoint. And so what this is expressing is the growth uh, that takes place during the intervening period the growth of Christendom uh, during the intervening age uh, from the viewpoint of, uh, of man, from the viewpoint of man. So there's two things that are emphasized here. First of all, the kingdom message 
uh, will expand rapidly in the intervening age, and there will be an extraordinary speed and growth of the kingdom message uh, in the age before the kingdom, which is what we've seen over the past 2,000 years. And initially, the gospel in the first century spread all over the world. We know that Thomas took it to India. There are still groups of Indian uh, believers in India who trace can trace their heritage all the way back uh, to uh, Thomas, uh, one of the original disciples. In fact, recently I was uh, at a doctor's office, and one of the male nurses was an Indian who uh, had grown up as a Christian in India and as part of these descendants of Thomas in the period of the 17th century when the Portuguese were colonizing in India, uh, they were converted to Roman Catholicism, but they have a heritage that uh, they believe goes all the way back uh, back to Thomas. So even though we don't have a lot of records on the expansion of, uh, of Christianity in the first century, we have enough in various little documents and traditions that have sprung up to understand the gospel went to China, went to India, went into Africa, North Africa, went as far as Britain, uh, very rapid expansion. So the first thing that this parable teaches is that in the intervening age there will be a rapid expansion of the message, and second, that the prosperous growth is so large that the birds dwell in the branches. In other words, there is going to be a blessing to the whole world as a result of this expanse. And that is also true, without getting into a history lesson, uh, European nations would still be uh, just as primitive and just as aboriginal as the aborigines of Africa or the aborigines of Australia or anywhere else if it hadn't have been for the arrival of Christianity. Christianity changed the barbarism. Rome was barbaric. The Greeks were barbaric. And all of that was changed because of the influence of Christianity, which led to the incredible development and expansion of, of civilization in Western civilization in the last uh, 2,000 years. And all of the prosperity, technology, everything that we have is the result of this Western expansion. It is not the result. Of, none of this came out of India, China. They duplicate it. They imitate it. But it all has its source in uh, what came out of Western, Western civilization. So that's a um, second parable. The third parable is very short. Again, Matthew 13, 13, 33, another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. Now, there are some who try to make this positive, but it's not. Leaven all the way through Scripture, from the Old Testament all the way up through the New Testament, everywhere else, leaven is negative. It represents evil. It, uh, leaven is to be removed during the Feast of Unleavened Bread in uh, the Jewish calendar because it depicts evil. Uh, there's no leaven in the matzah, in the uh, uh, Passover meal, because it pictures the presence of evil, and the matzah ultimately pictures the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ who is without sin. So the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. At the same time that there's this expansion from an external viewpoint, from God's perspective, there is uh, evil uh, in the intervening age. It's, it, this also uh, reflects the, the tares growing up, uh, what we saw in the second, uh, the second parable. So the parable of the mustard seed indicates the kingdom expansion as it appeared to the eyes of men, whereas the parable of leaven gives God's view that evil permeates everything 
in, in terms of the external uh, externals of Christendom uh, during this age, and uh, that this has to reach its fruition prior to the judgment and the establishment of the kingdom is indicated by the New King James has the word till or until eheos in the Greek that it has to reach its ultimate expansion in, in, the, in the world until it is all leavened. And then once it reaches that expansion, then that's when the judgment comes. That's when the kingdom is then uh, going, to be, uh, going to be established. So the parable of the mustard seed pictures the growth and expansion from man's perspective historically, and the leaven represents the moral, spiritual uh, flaw in the presence of evil that is still within external Christendom uh, during the uh, present age until... Uh, it reaches its uh, end game, and then there will be judgment and the establishment of the uh, establishment of the kingdom. Then skip down to verse 44 because there's an intervening section there with the explanation of the wheat and the tares. And in verse 44, we have another short parable: this parable of hidden treasure. Again, the, Jesus said it: the kingdom of heaven is like a the treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, what is this talking about? The treasure is the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, the promise of the kingdom, the hope of the kingdom that came out of the Old Testament. So it is a reference to the kingdom and the hope of the kingdom for Israel as they saw it and understood it in the Old Testament. They anticipate that's their future hope, their messianic hope that the kingdom will come. So the kingdom of heaven is like this treasure, but it gets hidden in a field. It gets covered up. It gets lost. It gets camouflaged. It gets overgrown. What happened to it? Well, this is what happens after the kingdom under Solomon reaches the uh, high water mark, the apex of its uh, of glory in ancient Israel. And then when Solomon uh, rejected God, he's influenced by his wives. He brings in all of the uh, other religions of their uh, home countries establishes all of these alternate worship sites around Jerusalem, uh, and then there's just this downhill slide. Uh, after he dies, there's a, re- a tax revolt that occurs. The northern ten tribes split off from the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. You have now have the northern kingdom of Israel that is always reprobate. Then you have the southern kingdom of Judah, which is... Uh, mostly reprobate, but there are six kings that are that are positive, but they all have flaws and failures. So the the concept of the kingdom, the promise, the prophecy of the kingdom becomes hidden in the apostasy that occurs in Israel. So that God warned through Isaiah and through the other prophets that the northern kingdom would be defeated, destroyed, wiped out by the uh, Assyrians which is what happened, and in 722 B.C., the ten tribes are conquered by the Assyrians, and they are deported and repopulated uh, throughout the uh, Assyrian Empire. Uh, many of them, though, you don't get to, tr- there's no true ten lost tribes. Many of those people saw it coming, and we're told within Scripture they went south. They just packed their bags and headed down to the kingdom of Judah so that there is survived clear survivors of all the tribes in the southern kingdom of Judah. But the southern kingdom of Judah also falls prey to apostasy, so that by the time you get to 
after Hezekiah, everything just goes downhill, uh, with the exception of Josiah, until God swears after Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, that I'm not going to restore the kingdom. I'm going to take you all out just like I did the southern kingdom. Uh, Babylon's going to come in and defeat you and deport you because you are stiff-necked, rebellious, and you refuse to worship me, and you refuse to be obedient to, to Torah. You've succumbed to idolatry again and again and again, and I'm fed up with it, and you're out of the land for a while. And so the kingdom message gets hidden until a man finds it. And this is a reference to Jesus. He's alluding to himself. He, he fi- finds it, and he is presenting it to Israel, but when they, it's rejected in Matthew chapter 12, uh, it gets hidden again. So this is the, the hiding. Uh, it's hidden in a field which a man found, that is Jesus presenting it, and hides. Well, it goes back into hiding because... Uh, Matthew 12, the Pharisees rejected the offer of the kingdom. So, and for joy over it, he sells all that he has and buys the field. That's redemption. His purchase of the field is a picture of the redemptive death of Jesus. So the picture here is that uh, the mystery that is revealed is a temporary setting aside of Israel's kingdom, uh, redemption has been accomplished, but the unveiling of the kingdom for Israel is yet future. That has been postponed. That takes us to the next parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. But notice the contrast between the plural pearls in verse 45 and the one pearl in verse 46. When he found one pearl of great price. So there have been volumes written on trying to figure out what this is talking about, but to be consistent within the flow of the, of the parables here in Matthew 13, this is talking about the intervening age. What is the valuable, valued one thing in the intervening age before the kingdom? It's the church. The one pearl pictures the unified church. That there is, as uh, in Ephesians 4, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The church is one entity spiritually. It is, uh, the, it's the unity of the church, the oneness of the church, and the buying of it, the purchase of it. Again, purchase always speaks of redemption. And so this, again, is speaking of the fact that the man purchases the church. There's redemption for the church, redemption in the uh Parable of the hidden treasures, redemption for Israel. The picture here is redemption uh, for the church. And it is uh, the revelation of this then comes. The one thing that's left out here is when is this revealed? And it is revealed when the kingdom is established. And then we come to the last parable in verse 47, which is the parable of the dragnet. This is, uh, this is not talking about the television show. It's not talking about Jack Webb. just want to see if anybody's listening. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. So everything gets picked up. When it, this, is an, this is parallel to the wheat and the tares. When it was full, so it reaches a certain point. That's the same thing as the until everything is leavened in the parable of the leaven in verse 33. Um, it, it, uh, when it was full, they drew it to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. Once, now this is the same as separating the wheat from the tares at the end of the age. 
It is the judgment. It is separating the good from the bad, the righteous from the unrighteous. This occurs at the end of the age, so this picture is the judgment. Uh, verse 49 makes the application, so it will be at the end of the age, that is, at the end of the intervening age before the kingdom is established. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just. That's the same thing that's stated uh, at the end of the parable of the tares, that the uh, Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. So you see how this sort of ties elements from the different parables together to make the final point. So it will be at the end of the age. Angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Once again, emphasizing uh, long-term, painful, eternal punishment for the unjust. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and gives them a little final exam question. He says, did you really understand what I was talking about? And uh, they say, yes, Lord. Not a clue. And uh, it's like most people. You've got to hear it a few times before you figure it out. So uh, he, they say, yes, Lord. And he says to them and gives them one last statement. But this really isn't one of the parables, but it sort of ties it all up. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like, but he's going to tie this together. And he says in conclusion, therefore, Every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like. What's, what's going on here? Who was against him? The scribes and the Pharisees. They've rejected his offer of the kingdom. And so Jesus has rejected the, uh, the scribes of Israel because they've rejected him. And he's bringing in new scribes, the writers of the New Testament. So he says, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven. Who's that? That's the disciples who are in front of him. These are the authors of the New Testament. Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. The things new are the new doctrines related to the kingdom, pertaining to the kingdom, and preparation for the kingdom that Jesus is now teaching. The old is what had already been revealed in the Old Testament. And so when he talks about the scribes, he's alluding to their future role and that they will teach that which is old coming out of the uh, Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and that which is new, that which Jesus is beginning to unfold uh, for them. And so... This is a key element in understanding the postponement of the kingdom. Now, there's another passage that we're very familiar with that also indicates that the kingdom is completely postponed. It's not like we're in some sort of partial kingdom, already not yet kingdom. That's a fancy code word that theologians uh, today are trying to figure out how we're in the kingdom, but we're not in the kingdom, so they call it already not yet. Uh, it is and it isn't. Um, you know, it's like it's white and it's black at the same time. can't be both. Um, it's a logical fallacy, but uh, the blind leads the blind. So you have here in Luke 22, Jesus is talking to his disciples on at the Lord's, what we refer to as the Last Supper, uh, what establishes the Lord's table. And in the course of that Passover meal, Jesus said, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. 
Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he's, he doesn't see this as coming in partially. He sees this as, I'm not going to eat or drink until the kingdom comes in. And that is depicted when you get into uh, Revelation. Uh, you look at some of the other parables that Jesus taught in terms of prophecy, that there's the uh, wedding feast of the Lamb that occurs uh, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom and this, this great celebration that occurs. So the kingdom of God is postponed. Now, what happens in this final period of time when Jesus is teaching uh, the disciples is that he has to prepare them for this previously unforeseen period of time that's going to come between his death, resurrection, and ascension and his return to establish the kingdom. There are going to be new elements about this period of time. And so it is at the Last Supper, uh, as described in John chapter 15, 16, and 17, or actually John 13, 14, 15, and 16, where you have the Last Supper, where Jesus begins to teach them for the first time about the spiritual life of the intervening age. So that when you come to Acts 1, 3, and we read Jesus teaches them concerning the kingdom, what Jesus is doing is he's going back over and over and over the lessons he taught in Matthew 13. There's an intervening age. It's going to be different. Evil and good will coexist. All of that has to happen. It can't be dealt with until the end of the age and when there is a judgment, and that judgment has to come before the kingdom is established. And what's the role and purpose of the intervening age? It is to prepare another, a second group of the people of God called the church, and they are going to become the bride of Christ. They will be the, um, the those who rule and reign with Christ when he comes in his kingdom. And so the life of the believer uh, during the intervening age is oriented towards that future kingdom. That's why uh, the kingdom is important, not because we're in the kingdom, not because we're living for the kingdom, but because we're preparing for the kingdom and we're living today in light of that future destiny, that future role uh, when we come into the kingdom. And so uh, at the end what we see is that what Jesus is doing uh, when he's talking to the disciples about the kingdom, is he's not teaching them that the kingdom is now. He's not teaching them that the kingdom is in their hearts. He's not teaching them how to live uh, as, uh, as if the kingdom is in existence. He is teaching them on how to prepare for the kingdom and how to teach uh, their followers and those who uh, listen to them, those who follow their teaching, and how to prepare for the kingdom. It's the same kind of thing we see in Matthew 13 and John 13 through 17 as he expands on that teaching to prepare his followers to live in the intervening church age and to prepare for their future role to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom. So that helps us to understand what is going on when we get into those first three or four verses there in, in Acts. Because immediately after that, when we get into chapter, uh, excuse me, when we get into verse 4, and while they are gathered together, while they're assembled together, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because that's where all these prophecies are supposed to happen. 
to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. What was the promise of the Father? It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. John promised it as a baptism of the Spirit, as did Jesus. What's that all about? And uh, then the disciples are confused, say, well, are you establishing the kingdom now? When are you going to do it? And in verse 7, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So starting in verse 4, it's about the promise of the Holy Spirit. Down to verse 8, it's receiving power when the Holy Spirit comes. All that's related to the kingdom, and you'll have to come back next week to figure that out. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, uh, get a little better understanding of the kingdom message as the background for the New Testament, as the background for even for the life of Christ. We pray that this would challenge us because our future destiny is to rule and reign with you. And we pray that as we think about these things and reflect upon what we studied, that it will, that God the Holy Spirit will apply it to our own thinking, that we might not just live for today, but live for eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.